history is more than what you remember. I am one of your hosts, Lauren, and I will be your main talker today. Uh, joining me is Maria. Hello. And Dave. How's it going, everybody? Um, you may remember from last time, there's four of us. Unfortunately for us, but good for Derek. He has a real adult job now, so he cannot join us this week, but he gives us his love and he will be back next month. So we are going to be talking today about the Mayflower and the Pilgrims. Many people learn in third grade, especially in New England, that the Pilgrims came to the New World, made friends with the Native Americans, had some pumpkin pie, and boom, the United States was born. But as we all know as historians, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So let's begin with Operation Mayflower. You guys ready? Ready. Oh. Punch it, Lord. <laughs> so what we are going to do right now is I am going to go through a little bit of just some background. It's mostly a timeline just to give us some context. And then if Dave and or Maria have any questions or debates or anything, uh, we'll be able to have that. Um, if we have time at the end, I might tell you some stories. I might not. Um, many of them may overlap with what I'm saying in the beginning, uh, but we'll see what happens. Um, and if anyone's wondering, my major source is of Plymouth Plantation, which was written by Plymouth Colony's second governor, William Bradford. You'll be hearing a whole lot about him momentarily. All right, so the year is 1608, and a group of people known as the Separatists are meeting in Scrooby Manor in Nottinghamshire, England. What we have going on there is people that don't like the Church of England. Um, as many people know, Henry VIII wanted to get a divorce. And so therefore, he created his own church. From there, um, there are some people that did not believe that the uh, Church of England was doing a good job. Basically, uh, we know two groups um, of those. Uh, we know two groups of the descent from the Church of England, especially here in Massachusetts. Uh, that triangulates myself. That's fine. Um, they are known as the Pilgrims and the Puritans. I'll get more into that a little bit later. But essentially, the Puritans um, did not like the. Uh, church. So the way that it went is they wanted to uh, help the church by becoming ministers and um, pastors so that they can change the church from within. The pilgrims said, this is a sinking ship and we're getting off. So beginning in 1606 and into 1607, the separatists began to meet in private in Nottinghamshire. This was not a good move for the pilgrims. Um, back then, if you did not go to church on Sundays, you would be fined or thrown in prison. Yay. Um, that often happened. The pilgrims believed that uh, the Church of England had to go back to the Bible. If it was in the Bible, it would do it. 
if it was not in the Bible, they would not. Um, that even includes celebrating Christmas. Um, Christmas was not necessarily in the Bible, so unless it falls on Sunday on the Sabbath, uh, they would not celebrate it. And they also believed that marriage was not in the Bible. They knew that Jesus attended a marriage, um, but they only knew or believed that they had to um, celebrate the marriage, but they don't think it is a... Um, you know, necessary thing to be happening in the church or by a priest or things like that. So some of the main players at this point is William Bradford and William Brewster. We'll hear more about them later because they become, well, pilgrims in the new world. So moving on, 1608, the separatists move to Holland in the Netherlands. Uh, they begin in the Amsterdam area, but soon realize that they don't really like the city life, and so they move to Leiden. Um, they stay there for about 12 years, and they are led by uh, John Robinson, and then we'll remember William Brewster's name for 30 seconds ago. Um, he was kind of John Robinson's second-in-command. They moved to Holland because they believed, which was sort of true at the time, um, Holland had more religious freedom than they were getting from the Church of England. Since, like I said, Church of England, it was illegal to not go to church and celebrate the Church of England. Uh, not going to church and attending your own kind of religious um, services was not allowed. So for 12 years, uh, the separatists lived in Holland. They kind of liked it. They kind of didn't. They were not fans of the hard work that they had to do. Uh, many of the separatists had to do uh, low um, wage making jobs. Their children had to work. And, quote, yet old age began to seal on many of them, which means they were growing old before their time because they had to work a lot. They also did not like being in Holland because their children were becoming Dutch. What a concept. Um, they did not, <laughs> they didn't enjoy the fact that while they were not in England, their children were not being English. Yeah, I know. Crazy. Um, so they wanted, quote, removal to some other place for sundry weights and solid reasons, as said before. And so they kind of fought over where they wanted to be, but they made the decision to go to America. By America, I mean Virginia, which at this point was essentially most of the East Coast of North America. Um, they wanted to settle in the Hudson River Valley, uh, which is now uh, New York. So they get some investors. Um, essentially, they could not the pilgrims could not pay their way. Uh, so they had to go to England and ask some adventurers and investors to pay their way. The deal was, sure, we'll pay for your way across the ocean, but you have to work for seven years and send back all the money that you make so that you can pay off your own debt. Uh, the pilgrims said, sure. And they made their way back to England to depart uh from england to go to well new england 
They had two ships. It was the Speedwell and everyone's favorite, the Mayflower. It is a common misconception that the Mayflower came over with Christopher Columbus. It is not part of the Nina and Pinta and Santa Maria. It was actually supposed to come over with the Speedwell. The Speedwell, as we know, does not make a name for itself in American history. This is because the Speedwell was leaky. All ships will take on a little bit of water. It's just an occupational hazard. But the Speedwell was taking on more water than they could pump out. So the ships depart from England in 1620. Uh, they were not far off the coast when Speedwell began to spring a leak. The two ships came back to England and the Speedwell got fixed up. And so they tried again. Once again, the Speedwell sprung a leak and the two ships made their way to, ironically, Plymouth, England. The people on the Mayflower were starting to get a little bit angry. Uh, Governor William Bradford speculates that the leaks were on purpose so that the Speedwell crew didn't have to make the journey. So they say, forget this. They shove 102 passengers onto the Mayflower, and they begin once again on September 6, 1620. So I'll just take a second to kind of talk about what was on the Mayflower um, in terms of people. Um, so there was 25 to 30 sailors that were working on Mayflower and there were 102 passengers. The vast majority were men, um, but of the about 25 to 30 women, three of them were pregnant, which no thanks. That sounds um, fun. I would not. <laughs> um, just a quote from William Bradford about um, the Mayflower voyage. This is one of the main things that we know about the Mayflower. Um, they had enjoyed fair winds and weather for a season. They were encountered many times with cross winds and met with many fierce storms with which the ship was shroudly shaken and her upper works made very leaky and one of the main beams in the midships was bowed and cracked so essentially what bradford is saying is it sucked so they were living in what they call the tween decks uh which is right below the main deck it would have been dark it would have been not smelling great it would have been very crowded with about 20 families and it was wet it was leaky and one of the main beams actually cracked. A lot of people know this story. Um, the Mayflower was halfway across the Atlantic Ocean at that point, and they had to make the decision whether or not they wanted to continue on or turn back a third time. They found a uh, screw jack, or rather they brought with them a screw jack, um, and they simply just kind of forced the beam back together uh, because, at least for the pilgrims, they did not want to turn back. If they did not continue on, they would not have um, really probably set off again. It was now or never. And to their um, credit, they made it. 
On November 11th, 1620, the Mayflower arrives in Cape Cod. Um, it is what is now known as Provincetown, which is the tip of the Cape. Uh, they were about 200 miles off of where they want to be at the Hudson River. Um, so not too bad for the time. And well, they wanted to keep on going. They attempted to sail down the coast from Provincetown down to New York. They found that they were unable to do so. In between Cape Cod and the islands Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, there are bad shoals, which kind of mean basically that the tide is constantly changing and even you know, in 2020, experienced sailors have a problem getting through. So the captain, Christopher Jones, decided, you know what? We're going. We're going back. They end up in Provincetown. Uh, they have two or three search parties to search around the area. And they come across the Nosset Wampanoag people. This leads to their, quote, unquote, first encounter and what is now Eastham. It did not go well. Um, the last time that the Nosset Wampanoag saw English people, um, it was the Englishman taking uh, taking native people for slaves. It took about 20 men to become uh, slaves in England. So they went after the pilgrims with arrows, bows and arrows. They did not harm any of the pilgrims. It was clear that they were sending off warning shots saying, I could kill you if I wanted to get lost. For once in their lives, the pilgrims got the message and they left. And in 1620, on December 16th, they, quote, arrived safe in this harbor in Plymouth. They also didn't really want to be in Plymouth either. Uh, the uh, crew knew of a really safe harbor with a large river, and that's where they were trying to go within Cape Cod and Massachusetts Bay. They got caught in a storm, the pilgrims got caught in a storm, and they saw a harbor and they went for it. And that harbor was Plymouth. Uh, we believe that they were trying to go to Boston, but Boston would be settled eh, 10 years later in 1630. So they decided just to say where they were. And on December 25th, 1620, Christmas Day, they began to erect the first house, quote, for common use to them and their goods. Uh, where they were was known as Patuxet. It was already settled by the Wampanoag people and was looked um, after, or rather controlled by the Poconokets in what is now Bristol, Rhode Island. A lot of people know the name of the Poconokit leader, Massasoit, or Massasoit. Very uh, still on which one's correct. Um, Patuxet was abandoned. Uh, this is because a few years before the Pilgrim showed up, there was a massive outbreak of disease from Maine to Cape Cod, and 90% of the uh, native population in that area was wiped out. So Patuxet was, as the Pilgrims saw it, free for the taking. They continued to build about five 
buildings by the spring of 1621. All of that while um, getting very sick. Seasickness was rampant on the Mayflower. They were weak. I'm sure scurvy had some sort of play in the sickness of um, the pilgrims. And by the time they got to the New World, it was December. It was cold. It was snowy. Um, they had to walk through water in order to get to land. And the water would easily freeze on their clothes. Uh, by March of 1621, scarce 50 remained of their 100 passengers. So bad that in March, two or three people died a day. They got through it though. Um, and on March 1621, they saw their first uh, native person or in the area of Plymouth or Patuxent. His name was Samoset. He walked right into the Plymouth colony and said in English, welcome Englishman. Uh, that is how they began their relationship. Uh, from there, uh, Samoset got in contact with the pilgrims and introduced them to who many people know as Squanto or Disquantum and Massasoit. So that is where I'm gonna leave off, kind of a cliffhanger um, of 1621. Basically where we're at is the pilgrims cross the ocean. They are here, they are dying, but they are in Massachusetts and they have 50 of them by March of 1621. Uh, we might have a later episode on the first Thanksgiving, so I will uh, stop there with some basic background information. Uh, do you guys have anything that you want to add or anything that you want me to talk about? I'm curious. Um, a little bit ago, you just mentioned um, disease. Was that, have people theorized if it's from the first settlers that came to that area or is it something different? That's a really good question. Um, one of my favorite answers for this kind of stuff is we don't know, comma, but. Um, so we believe, it's believed that it was from um, like fishermen up in Maine and off the coast of Massachusetts. Because um, they were interacting with the native people up there. Uh, trading furs, trading fish. Uh, so we uh, kind of speculate um, that it was from them because it sort of started up in Maine and then traveled its way down the coast. Another uh, question I have is, so when, so when the Mayflower came over, Right, they had. I'm, I'm guessing they had agricultural goods with them as well. Mm -hmm. Any of those? So, were there any traces of those uh, food items here in um, in in the northern hemisphere before the Mayflower arrived, or did they linger after they got here? That's a good question. Um, it really, at this point, Jamestown had already been here. Um, so it's kind of 
was it the Mayflower or was it Jamestown that brought things? Um, however, mostly uh, the agricultural grains and things that the pilgrims brought with them did not grow well around here. Um, down in Jamestown, there's already wheat. Uh, so up here, uh, the pilgrims brought barley, wheat, and peas, and they wanted to plant them. They want That's what they wanted to live off of, um, but it didn't grow well. They need a longer uh, growing season than what the Massachusetts environment at the time could provide, which is why the Squanto story of um, teaching the pilgrims how to plant maize corn was so important. Maize corn grows very well up in Massachusetts. Um, so that is what they were eating for many years before they really had enough, um, you know, sustainability to try to add wheat, uh, rye, barley, and peas to the environment. But the environment already had those things, at least in modern United States. Perhaps not in this area because the pilgrims were the first in this uh, region to try to settle, but um, it wasn't a completely new concept to North America, I guess. Long story short. Animals did they bring, if any? What animals did they bring? Um, we know for sure there were three dogs. Christopher Jones, the captain of the Mayflower, had dogs, and the Pilgrims had a Mastiff and a Spaniel. Um, we are not sure what kind of um, like livestock they brought. They don't tell us. However, uh, pretty early on in the colony, they had sheep, goats, and chickens. So the jury is still out on whether they came over on the Mayflower or on the second ship, the Fortune, that came uh, 1621. It's fascinating how the, the beginnings of this nation, right, with the Mayflower and all the people and all that, and when it comes to agricultural and um, domestic food production, we're still very uncertain about it. Is that because mm -hmm. there's just no documentation or no records that survived, or is it just pretty much myth at this point? Um, I mean, both. There's really no documents on the Mayflower that survive. Um, they don't even tell us that it was the Mayflower. That's discovered after by process of elimination. Uh, we knew the captain of the ship, we knew how big the ship was, but they only call the Mayflower a big ship if they're talking about Speedwell versus Mayflower or just the ship. And even then, um, William Bradford, who really is the reason why we know as much as we do, he writes seven pages on um, the voyage. So it's really like we don't know because Bradford really who tells us everything that we know about Plymouth Colony. And again, he only wrote seven pages on it. So one question I have, um, you at one point kept mentioning Jamestown. And when you were mentioning Jamestown, 
that kind of sparked a question for me. Were they mm -hmm. trading with Jamestown or having any kind of communication at this point? Or was Jamestown, because of them not doing well at this point, were they not a factor? They were not a factor. Uh, even when they were deciding where to go, they being the pilgrims, uh, they knew that while they wanted to be um, in, quote, Virginia, they did not want to be close to Jamestown. They wanted to do their own thing. Um, because Jamestown, like you said, it was not doing well at that point. Plus, it was not necessarily the same type of colony that uh, Plymouth turned into. Jamestown, they were trying to make money. Uh, Plymouth was trying to make homes for themselves. There were women and children. Um, so they really didn't communicate all that well. Or at all, I guess. No, that, that's fair. Um, another question I have in it, it, it probably is a silly question, but I feel like it's worth asking. Um, the native Samoset, is that how you say his name? Samoset, how did he know um, English? Was it from, you? I remember you said there were fishermen or there were other Englishmen who had showed up to capture some of the natives. Did he get captured or what was his previous experience that allowed him to have the knowledge of the English language? Sure. So he was not a Poconocet or um, Nosset or Patuxet Wampanoag. Um, he was from the main area. Uh, we believe that he was some sort of Abenaki, uh, which is like, which is different than the Wampanoag people. And he, while he was in Maine, uh, was able to um, learn English from the fishermen in Maine. Um, he was trading with those people. So that's how he knew how to uh, communicate. Um, it was broken English, but it was enough for them to, un them being the pilgrims, enough to understand. Um, though Samoset ended up going back and getting Squanto or Desquantum, who knew better English. That is because he was captured as a slave. Uh, we're not entirely sure how Desquantum ended up back in Massachusetts, uh, but he was a Patuxet Wampanoag person, meaning he was from Plymouth. Um, he was taken as a captive. He was in slavery, and then he ends up back in North America. Uh, so that's how we knew English. Um, Massasoit did not know English, to the best of my knowledge. Very cool. Thank you. Problem. Anything else we're thinking of? It's interesting that even after the English despise the Church of England and they move to Dutch, they still consider themselves very English. Even when they move here initially, it's they're they're very English still. So does that? Do you think that plays a part in the later development of uh, North America? Maybe not North America per se. Um, I think they definitely show that the Massachusetts region was more than just a wasteland. Um, but they did, I mean, even in um, 
what we know now is the Mayflower Compact, when they sent back a document uh, to England to say, hey, we're not where we're supposed to be, but we're following the rules. They say, in the name of God, amen, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he, th they didn't want to not be English. They wanted to be, just be English in their own way, which I mean, I guess kind of has remnants or echoes in later America, American British colonies, um, because they were like, well, we want to be English, but we don't like what King, etc., whoever it is at the time is saying. Um, but yeah. Not to show you up, but I'm pretty sure it was King George. One one of the Georges, I don't know what number comes after his name, but I'm pretty sure it was. for the American Revolution. Yeah, that's yeah. King George, uh, King George the Third. Yeah, I meant um the 1600s. Oh wait, oh, never mind. King I understand what you're saying. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, it would have been King James the First, right? Correct. Okay. And then King Charles the Second. Sure. No one yell at me in the comments. I swear I know what I'm talking about. We got it. You'll go with it. I trust you. Your your <laughs> knowledge your knowledge is pretty good with this stuff, so I trust you. <laughs> All right. So just just a quick question. How did you get into colonial America history? Because I was reading some of the documents, and I'm like, God, you know, I I could not prove with any it, of this. Like, I I appreciate it, but like, try, trying to be a historian in this field, like, they have some patience and some interpretations. Um, literally, like, I joke that I don't know how to read. So, like, reading something from 400 years ago when they literally are just like, yeah, that wording seems right helps um i mean taking various college classes definitely sparked my interest um i was already always interested in the american revolution um but growing up in the area where um 17th century colonial history is like that's it like that's how that's how the nation was created um like really sparked my interest plus i work in not to further triangulate where I live um but I work in a museum in the time period so that definitely helps spark an interest that I always had um I'm a big geek so I'm like yeah I'll read William Bradford's of Plymouth Plantation even though he spells Plymouth 12 different ways and speaks in third person um but it's just interesting to me, not so much for the reason of like, quote, this is what built America, but just like, why did these people, all 102 of them, go onto this ship and be like, yeah, this is fine. I'm going to sit here for, a. I don't think I mentioned this, but it was a 66 day um, journey. Like, I wouldn't be able to do it. So it's very interesting to read the stories of who and why and all that stuff. I have a quick question. Did they ever get 
replenishment. This sounds terrible to say it that way, but did anybody else ever come over and kind of help replenish the colony after the original 102 and the Speedwell? Yes. So um, the Fortune is the first ship to come over after the play. Uh, well, after the Mayflower in 1621, it was supposed to bring supplies um but mainly it just brought more people um it, they see that um happen a lot that they were like oh we're gonna bring you stuff but it's really not so um so the fortune came over and then the little james and then the anne um, but so basically, this sounds terrible because it is, um, the pilgrims were dying and more people were coming in. They were starving to death. Um, and they said to the investors, Hey, so you're sending more people. Can you send us more cargo? And the investors were like, well, how about you send us stuff and then we'll talk about saving you, um, which kind of gets into 1622, 1623. Um, the pilgrims nearly starved themselves to death because they didn't have anything coming over but people. And the investors in England just wanted more stuff. But every time the pilgrims sent anything, um, it was either to an empty ship or their cargo was taken by pirates. Yay. <laughs> That's a bad gig. Yeah, so the fortune went back in 1622 and it was full um, of stuff and the pilgrims were so excited because it would take like a huge chunk out of what they owed. And it was seized by the French. Because the French. <laughs> When was, this This might be another silly question, but when was the next uh, colony or town that sprung up around the Plymouth? When were the Plymouth, when did the Plymouth Pilgrims stop being the only English people in the area? Um, so Mass Bay Colony um, was founded in 1629 um, in Boston. People were up in Salem a little bit earlier, um, sometime between 1626 and 1628. Uh, eventually, the pilgrims started branching out modern-day Duxbury and Marshfield uh, when they started to outgrow their little tiny street um, of Plymouth. But they weren't alone up there for too long. But Something to keep in mind is that Massachusetts Bay Colony, especially in Boston, they immediately rose up in the world. They had a better harbor. Um, they were a little bit easier going than the Pilgrims. Um, and they were Puritans. So they were... Now it doesn't seem like there's much of a difference, but back then it was... They were different sects of like um, the descent from the Church of England. We've been given a lot of attention to the pilgrims. How did, I mean, 
I know what happened, but for the folks out there who might be listening and might have a question, uh, how did the natives start to fare with all of this English um, influence? Not well. So the first generation, I think the pilgrims, especially one of them, uh, William Brewster, um, was very... Um, or Edward Winslow, rather, um, was very, he knew that they were screwed. They knew that they were dying quickly. They knew that all the natives had to do was just walk in and say, we're going to kill you now, and they would be done. Um, to the point where, as people were dying in 1621, the pilgrims were burying the dead in unmarked graves so that they can attempt to not show the natives how well off, uh, worse off they were. Um, Massasoit was, you know, he trusted the English, perhaps almost to a fault. Um, he tried to help them out as much as they could, even at the expense of other native people in the area, especially up into the Massachusetts um, people's area, uh, which happens, like, some people, I mean, we could do an entire episode on the Pequot War, um, but the English decided to go after the Pequots, and that was fine by the Poconogets, um, not fine, but messes, so it let it happen, like, I guess didn't let it happen, but he wasn't mad about it, um, it was a second generation where people, it started to fall apart. Um, I don't know if people know of King Philip's War, um, but King Philip, um, also known as Metacomet, uh, kind of said, you know, we are, he, they were losing all of their land. They were selling their land. Um, and, you know, it's like, we got to, like, it's now or never we have to get rid of these people before it's too late. Um, that ended up with uh, Metacomet's head on a pike outside of Plymouth Colony's fort. Um, but really, the Wampanoag people especially really hurt uh, because they had no choice but to go along with what the pilgrims were doing, um, especially once Massachusetts Bay was established. Things really they were just doing such terrible things to the native people in the area. And just to add, I'm white, so I cannot speak for the Algonquin people in the area, um, but it was not a good situation for them at all. Do you think past interactions between English and natives do, do you think the past interactions between the two groups have led the english to be fearful of the indians um and the indians to not be afraid but be standoff with the english or do you think that bridge was being was being mended a little bit until um the english colony started to develop um i believe i mean i would not say that the Native people were fearful. If they were, they definitely had um, reason to be, but they were, you know, standoffish um, in Provincetown before the first encounter. Um, 
Pogrom people saw some native people when they tried to get their attention, the natives ran away. Um, and at the same time, I personally, I mean, this is just my opinion, um, but I don't think English people were afraid of the natives. I think they said, you know, they saw them as savage. They saw them as things to be Christianized. Um, so they said, okay, let's go. You're just working this way because you're, quote, heathens. Um, so they really weren't afraid as much as they saw it as a, a opportunity to bring more people into the separatist church or the pilgrim church, whatever you prefer. Would you, this is, how do I put this? Um, would you say that their relations were always focused on something that the natives were something for them to Christianize or was there a period of working togetherness or yeah I'll you you know what yeah. I'm trying to say yeah yeah um hard to say uh because we so there are um archaeological digs happening at Burial Hill in Plymouth uh Burial Hill was known to the pilgrims as Fort Hill that is where they were living. That's where their first fort for protection was. Um, and last summer, um, it's the University of Massachusetts in Boston. They had a dig and they found Wampanoag and English um, pottery and other uh, utensils and things right next to each other. So we do believe that they were working together more than we seem to assume. Uh, there is one um, primary source, which I'm not sure which one it is, um, that says a guy, a pilgrim man, saw a Wampanoag woman out in a canoe, and he remarked um, that she had just given birth three days before, and she he cannot believe, you know, she's already out canoeing, like, she must be pretty strong. Um, so that shows that, you know, he knew this woman enough to be able to spot her canoeing from a distance and be like, oh yeah, she just had a baby. Um, and there's also Massasoit really became uh, close with one pilgrim Winslow to the point where at one point um, they were, there were rumors that Massasoit was dead. In fact, he was simply just uh, very ill and Winslow went to see him and he said, Winslow, is that you? When Winslow said, I'm here, um, he said, I will never see you again, my friend, or something along those lines. So those two had a very, um, like a relationship um, that kind of would not be so, like we wouldn't, think that that would be a thing back then I guess if that makes sense so uh shifting focus here I have another question um what do we know of what their daily life was like I mean obviously we can tell that I'm sure there was a lot of work and religion involved but did they do anything for fun so they definitely, I mean, yes, there are 
like they did have games back then. One of them was Three Men's Morris, which is similar to Tic Tac Toe. Um, they had Shut the Box, which is basically you roll a dice and the box has like numbers from one to nine. And when you roll dice, if it gives you a six, you want to put down like a four and a two or something that adds up to six and put those numbers down and you try to shut the box. Um, but it was a lot of working. Uh, they had to work for the adventurers six of seven days a week. So they had to work for themselves on top of getting furs, um, lumber, and the other goods to send back. So they really, the only downtimes that they had, especially in that first year, would have been on Sundays when it was illegal to work. Like you couldn't even walk to the uh, fields, your field without getting in trouble. What was crime and punishment like? Did they have any problems with crime and punishment in the early years or even, even later years? Or was that because of the strict religious society, was that not something they really had to worry about? So they would have tied you, basically like a hog tie. You would just kind of be like kneeling. Like if you know yoga, it's like the like, um, cradle position. But instead of your arms all the way out, they're tied behind your back. So you would be tied like that for a few hours. Um, the Billington family was notorious for not wanting to do what people were expecting them to do, uh, which led actually led to the um, first execution in Plymouth. Um, in 1620, John Billington was hanged in Plymouth uh, for murder. He shot somebody. He shot John Newcomen. We're not entirely sure why, but he, the Billingtons, um, William Bradford describes them as, uh, like vulgar. They were not, they were seen as vulgar. Uh, they were, from what I recall, they were not part of the, um, separatist church. They were some of the passengers that were not um, part of the Leiden congregation. So I think that they really just didn't like them. Um, one of the Billington sons size young. Uh, one of the others, like, you know, they just got in trouble a lot. Pretty much. Maria, one thing I do want to mention is the, this is getting more to my feel a little bit, but in the environmental world, when we're looking at uh, North America, when it comes from this time period until um, the 20th century, when America is fully settled, um, it's called the pioneering uh, mentality, which the pioneer which the pioneering mentality comes kind of from religion as well that anything that was seen as wild, either it be savages or the landscape itself was unused, 
or unproduced on or unproductive in Western terms, that's when they would go and clear it out and make all these production points. So that's so that's something that something that comes up on some. So when um, these things are brought up in in environmental history points of view, it's viewed as the pioneering mentality. I did not know that. Thank you for that. Thank you. So I actually have another question, Lauren. Lauren, you just said something that I had never known and it sparked a question. You said that the family that were considered ruffians, um, that they were not part of the congregation. So were there other people sailing on the Mayflower that were not part of the religious congregation? Yes. So um, a lot of people on the ship were actually not part of the Church of Leiden. Um, the adventurers um, kind of let other people on board. Uh, uh, Pilgrims kind of refer to it, and I think there's a documentary out with the same name called it Saints and Strangers. So the saints, of course, were the Separatist Church of Leiden. Um, and the strangers were people going to, you know, get their riches or just leave uh, England or things like that. But they were not necessarily um, the quote unquote saints uh, because of everything that happened with the Speedwell. Um, the Speedwell, I should probably add, was actually the Pilgrim's ship. So they bought the Speedwell and they rented Mayflower. So many of the Speedwell passengers ended up not going on the ship, Mayflower, after, you know, turning back twice. So the amount of people on um, the Mayflower were actually not, you know, like William Bradford um, or Brewster, who were part of the Separatist Church. If you give me a second, I can tell you some of the passenger names that were not, um, quote, saints. Of course, the Billington family. Um, Stephen Hopkins, who became really important um, later on in Plymouth Colony, was actually, he was, um, he had been to Jamestown before. Uh, so he was on ship. He was not a separatist. Uh, he was a really cool guy. He like got in the shipwreck Try on the way to Jamestown. Was, cool. was he trying to go back home? Uh, not really. He just kind of um, like came over to the New World. Um, I'm not entirely sure why. He was really cool. Um, fun fact, you know the uh, Shakespeare play, The Tempest? Maybe. I read, I read uh, that but, book. Yeah, so it, yes. it's based off of the shipwreck that Stephen Hopkins was on. Huh, the more yeah. you know. Yeah, fun fact for the day. Anyone else have any questions? doing some some research for this podcast i came across a story that someone fell off the mayflower is that true or is that another myth 
Yeah, so um, his name was John Howland. He was one of the separatists. Um, he, yes, he fell off the Mayflower. What happened was uh, Howland was above deck uh, during a storm, and he fell overboard. Uh, he and lived. He fell off the Mayflower and lived. So essentially what happened was when he fell, uh, there were there was a line um, like hanging off the back of the ship and he uh, grabbed onto it and somehow held onto that uh, that line and eventually the sailors realized that um, something was dragging and that something was a person um, and they railed him back in. Um, Amazingly, John Howland got away with just a, you know, a week or two being sick, getting a cold. He actually went on to be pretty um, important to Plymouth Colony, and he went on to have 88 grandchildren. So he, so he, like, was, he was a little busy. A little bit busy. Very um, busy. He really, like, really, like, am I trying to say? If you're related to anyone on the Mayflower, it's probably John Howland. <laughs> um, he's not the only one to fall off the Mayflower, though. Um, in uh, Plymouth Harbor, William Bradford's first wife, Dorothy Bradford, fell off. Um, we're not entirely sure what happened there, but she seems to have wanted to get off the ship to go and be brought ashore, and she most likely slipped and fell. Uh, didn't not make it. Um, there is speculation that she was pushed or it was suicide. I strongly disagree. There is no evidence to say that that happened. They did not know how to swim. Uh, their shoes definitely did not have traction on them. It was wet. It was cold. She probably just fell. So I like to say that falling off the Mayflower has a 50% success rate. But... That's only because two of them did it. A good amount of drama on the Mayflower, honestly. Oh, all the here. drama. All the drama. And you know, that's, uh, you know that's, that's something that I don't think people recognize. Is I'm pretty sure people think of these stoic English people on their way over to the New World and don't think that on the ship, there's all this petty disagreement, these fights, or these, you know, these factions within it, and that real life still happens, even on the ship towards this paradise. Exactly. Yeah, it's so... I mean, this is kind of like the plug of our entire podcast, that's more than what you remember. It's so much more than... They made their way over, and then they were nice with the Indians, and then they have pumpkin pie. Like, it's so much com more complicated than that. Pie? Was, uh, there some, was there apple pie? It was probably, I mean, there may have been orchards later on, but they missed apples. There weren't any orchards in the New World. So it was probably pumpkin pie. It was probably like cornbread, but not the cornbread that we think of today. 
it was like a gigantic wheat thin that was bread because corn flour does not rise like wheat flour does. In case anyone was wondering. Is that <laughs> is that because of the characteristics of the wheat or just they didn't have the technology yet? Yeah, it's the characteristics of it. Um, even if you add yeast to corn flour, it'll bubble like it's going to do something, but it won't do anything. And then wheat just doesn't grow well around here. Just because it just, I think I said this before, it needs a longer growing time than like what you can provide. Like you can get like a five inch like stalk of wheat, but you can get an 18 inch stalk of corn. Did corn become their main source of food? Let, let's talk about corn. Mm -hmm. Um, Yay! Let's talk about corn. Um, was corn? I, I I know that corn was a big source of their diet, but is that true or is that myth? It's true. So they had a lot of what we know today as grits. They would um, mix it with any meat or vegetables. Um, say they have like some vegetables in it to begin with. Um, as like the week progressed, they would just add things that they had for the week or the day. Um, they got that from the Wampanoag people who called it Nassamp, um, N-A-U-S-A-M-P. So they would take it and they would actually, they would put nuts and berries in it. They would sweeten it with maple syrup and eat it that way. Um, so they ate a lot of grits. Um, so they ate a lot of grits and they also just would have eaten deer. Uh, they maybe would have eaten, um, some fish, but not like big fish, like bluefish or anything. It would have been like herring fish, which are tiny. That's mostly what they ate. Oh, and ducks and swans and geese. And probably turtles. It was mostly corn. Their diet was pretty pretty vast. Um, is there any um record? Is that all from firsthand accounts, or is there archaeological um, evidence of that, or? Um, it's a mix between like records of, of what we know that they had, like eventually they had chickens and there's like records of sheep and pigs, eventually pigs, eventually cows, but like it's mostly just based off of those records of what we know that they ate. Um, they had also like recipes. Um, John Winthrop Jr., who went on to um, found Connecticut, actually kind of wrote back to England to be like, this is corn and this is what they use it for. So that helps. A little bit of Bradford. He talked about a little bit, but he thought it was boring information, so he didn't really delve into it, even though that's the most interesting part, but that's fine. Um, the Mayflower bringing over agricultural goods. Did they ever send back things like corn, wheat, and all that back to England? So 
England was like, corn is inferior. We have wheat and rye. We don't need corn. It's useless. So they really didn't bring it back. Um, corn did not exist in Europe before the pilgrims came over. Um, they knew what it was, but they had never seen it. So it was in Provincetown, actually, that the pilgrims saw corn for the first time because they were in a Nosset Wampanoag um, summer like village and they were digging holes and grave robbing and stealing corn. So that's how they knew what corn was. Um, but England had no use for it. Come down and rob the grave and get the corn. Yeah. Did you say grave robbing? Yes, I did say grave robbing. So as they were making their way across Provincetown and looking things up, um, like looking around, they found a whole bunch of mounds in the ground and they dug one up and they found corn and they were like, okay, cool. Um, let's keep on going and we're gonna um, take this corn with us. Let's see if we can find some more. Now, they stole the corn because they were like, we're desperate and uh, we don't know if our stuff is gonna, you know, um, be like able to grow, which they were right. Um, so they stole the corn and then they kept on going and digging up more things. The next thing they knew, they found bodies. Because why not? Uh, the first people that came around were like, let's not, like, let's not um, disturb the dead. So they didn't. The second crew, though, we did. They were fully grave robbing. I'm trying to find, I can find where they talk about it, but I don't know if I can. Yeah, they actually, to the point where they found a body with yellow hair, and they just kind of stood around and were like, is this English? Maybe it's native. I don't know. But look at this guy. Which is, like, so bad. So bad. Yeah, I can't find it. But. Tensions with Tensions between, between. Um, um, Native Americans and English because of the grave robbing? Did the natives know that the grave robbing was happening? Of course they did. Um, but it didn't really come up again. Um, the corn stealing did come up again. Um, so one of the, we're going back to the Billington family. So John Billington the Younger got lost in the woods and he was found and returned to the Nosset Wampanoag people, because they were the whoever found them were like, here you go. We all know what's going on. Um, and they said, you know, we have our your kid. So a group went out to retrieve John Billington. Um, he was fine, he was taken care of, and they were like, Oh, perfect. This is the perfect time to repay for the corn. Now they didn't, they conveniently forgot. Um, but yeah, no, they definitely the Native peoples definitely knew what was going on, but they, from like what we like knowledge we do have, they didn't bring it up. 
this this might be um this might be an interesting question. I don't know if you can answer this. With um with the pilgrims being new to the North American or what would be the North American shore, were there any diseases or sicknesses that they brought over that the natives contracted that messed with them? Um that's a good question. A uh, few years into Plymouth Colony, there was a smallpox outbreak. Uh, we're not, like, the jury's still out as far as I know what happened there, but it also impacted the Plymouth colonists. So, but, I mean, this is going to sound bad, but honestly, there weren't enough Wampanoag people around because of the last epidemic. But um, what was just, that last epidemic? Or was, do we not know? It's um 1618 to 1619. It was that um epidemic that spanned from Maine to Cape Cod and killed 90% of the native people. Um, so now that I'm thinking of it, Massasoit did get sick. Like I was talking about how Winslow went to see him because they thought that he was dead um that may have been a western illness uh not entirely sure what it was but contract yeah. diseases that was natural to the native americans or was it just a one-sided thing it was a one-sided thing as far as i know as far as like what they tell us it was one-sided um the native people they didn't really have as much disease they did not have domesticated animals where many disease comes from they were bathing regularly um they kind of knew the like medicinal purposes of various things around them which i cannot repeat because i'm not entirely sure but and on a sad note do you have any happy stories uh from uh the Mayflower that you think everyone should uh, be tickled by? <laughs> Happiness on the Mayflower. Mm. Well, there were three births on the Mayflower. Um, on the way across the ocean, um, Oceanus Hopkins, son of Stephen Hopkins, was born. Um, everyone kind of knows the name Oceanus Hopkins. Unfortunately, he didn't grow to be an adult. Um, we have Peregrine White, who was born in Provincetown Harbor, and she did live, or he did live, to adulthood. And then in Plymouth, there's an unnamed Allerton child. I believe he was stillborn. Um, but there were babies on board. So the youngest person on the Mayflower was a newborn, and the eldest was about 60 to 65, and it was James Chilton, whose daughter would be Mary Chilton Winslow, who has the myth about her that she was the first person to step on Plymouth Rock. I can go on a whole different episode rant about Plymouth Rock. Can you give us the nutshell version of why there could be a rant about Plymouth Rock? So 
they could not, the pilgrims could not have sailed the Mayflower right to Plymouth Rock because it was too shallow. The Mayflower had to stop a mile out and then they had a shallop or kind of like a sailboat that would row them in the rest of the way. Plus the Plymouth Rock story is a American Revolution um, creation, uh, which was made down in Plymouth. If you went back in time and you were like, Where's Plymouth Rock? William Bradford would be like, there's many rocks here in Plymouth. You'd be like, thanks. <laughs> and I'll end with just a little plug. Um, if you are in the New England area and want to see what life would have been like on uh, the Mayflower, there is a reproduction in Plymouth Harbor. It's Mayflower 2. And it was built in 1957 and sailed over from England. So if you want to see what a hundred of your closest friends have been looking like for two months, go down to Plymouth Harbor. It's way smaller than you think it will be. I personally would have stayed back in England. There's a whole village there too, isn't there? Yeah, there's a there's um. So there's this museum called Plymouth Plantation. And if you want to go visit some pilgrims in the year 1627, uh, go down to Plymouth. It's pretty cool. Next year, 2021, is the 400th anniversary of the first Thanksgiving. Which, by the way, um, this is the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower landing. Um, as of right now, uh, this month of September 2020, that is when the Mayflower left England. Yay. Um, if you do go to Plymouth Plantation and visit the English village, uh, tell William Bradford that Operation History says hi. He won't know what that means, but I'll know what it means. So that's fine. <laughs> There's also uh, the whole native aspect over there, too, because... Uh, like you said, they have the re recreation of the English village, but they also have uh, a recreation with um, what the Native Americans would have had as well, right? So it's a little bit more than that. Um, they call it the Wampanoag home site. And that is, you will see Wampanoag people or other Native people, but actual Wampanoag people, they are still here. Um and they will be dressed in their regalia. And while they can tell you what life would have been like back in the 17th century, they are fully aware what year it is. They will tell you the different um, things that they went through. Uh, even today, even what the Wampanoag people are fighting for today when it comes to reservations, um, racism, and things like that. So visit Plymouth Plantation now known as Plymouth Patuxet, because Patuxet is Plymouth. So thank you so much for joining us today for Operation History. Um, Operation Mayflower, I guess, is what we're going to be calling this. Um, please make sure to follow and tweet us at Operation Hist. That is Operation H-I-S-T. We have our own Facebook page as well. And you can email us at operationhistorypodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions about the topic or if you want to suggest your own. If you have any questions, comments, complaints, please be nice to me. You know, 
2020 has been a long year already. Please love me. Um, and of course, if you want to hear more of Maria, you should really check out It's a Fan's World, where you can find it on all of your podcast listening platforms, such as Spotify and Stitcher. You can also find their Facebook page, It's a Fan's World. If you like Disney, go and visit Maria. Tell her Lauren says hi. So fun uh, fact, it's actually a little more than Disney. And um, yeah, well, that's that's another conversation. But it is a little, there's a lot of Disney, but there's a little more than Disney. And if you like these guys, you're definitely going to want to be tuning into our October episode because you're going to hear a lot of voice crossovers. There's going to be some special guests that we're having on It's a Fan's World. You might recognize them. Thanks, what do you mean by that at all? I'm not sure if they'll have to turn into It's a Fan's World to find out. Ooh, it's a cliffhanger. Ooh. A cliffhanger. Dun, so, do do. All right. Please rate and review the show on iTunes so that we can hear how much you love us. And please, again, I said this in the intro, if you have any cats, please at Operation Hiss. I love cats. I would love to see what cat you have. We all love cats. Let's be real. It's true. Please. Cats and dogs. Cats and dogs. Cat dog. And dogs. Once again, everyone, thank you for tuning in, and we will see you soon. Stay safe. This is Operation History signing off. history has no association with any of the institutions or organizations mentioned in this podcast. The views and expressions of the hosts and guests are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent any academic institutions, organizations, or companies that they currently work for or attend or that they have previously worked for or attended in the past. Thanks for listening and tune in next time for Operation History. History.